Thank you, Brady, for the message. Excellent, excellent. Uh, we desperately need more experiential reality in our walk in ministries today, and I appreciate you drawing from the Scripture and giving us those narratives that were so encouraging. <clears throat> uh, many of you know I work with Paul Washer and Heart Cry Missionary Society. Um, I'm transitioning into a different responsibility of ministry right now with Heart Cry. And Paul was meeting with us recently, and uh, this was probably about 10 months ago, right, maybe even a year ago at the apex of the Black Lives Matter social justice issue. And Heart Cry was being bombarded by so many Christians, both Calvinists and Arminians, when is Paul Washer going to come out with a statement as to what he believes about social justice? <clears throat> and Paul told us, he said, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Social justice is a ploy of the enemy to divert people from the gospel. So you have all these notables, you know, platform speakers, pastors, evangelists, itinerants that are making statements. It divides the body of Christ. He saw it as a diversion. And there's so much coming down the pike these days, whether it's egalitarianism, complementarianism, various other things, you know, that are dividing the body of Christ. People are taking sides. There's such polarization and as I was sharing with the men yesterday, I, I love the quote by Robert Murray McShane that the Christ in me will not fight with the Christ in you. And this is what I aspire to. So I want to do everything I can to make for peace, to provide those things that make for peace. That's my intention in this conference. And once again, I reiterate, you may say, well, we don't have a problem right now in relationships, whether it's individually or corporately, in our family or in our church family. But this will be the next test. By virtue of God's providence that you're sitting under this message, you'll be called upon to appropriate these principles. So I want to invite you to take your Bibles with me tonight and turn to a very familiar text in the book of Ephesians in chapter number 4, Ephesians chapter 4, <clears throat> and I want to begin with just a thought from the book by Alexander Strzok, If You Bite and Devour One Another, and then we'll look at this text in Ephesians chapter 4. Listen carefully as Mr. Strzok shares something that's very, very significant that will provide for us a prelude to something that you'll find to be very engaging in your spiritual walk with the Lord and in your relationship with the body of Christ. He says, It is imperative that church leaders teach the principles of conflict resolution and that all believers practice them. If when conflict flares, we would simply stop for a moment to consider the instruction of God's Word, and to seek the Holy Spirit's guidance, we would avoid many of the destructive behaviors that characterize our conflicts. We would prevent unnecessary breaches of fellowship. And this is what is so significant. Please listen carefully now. He gives a story of how one evangelist who had started a number of churches over a period of 40 years told him that every one of them eventually folded because of infighting among believers. No deliberate effort had been made to teach the new churches and their leaders how to deal with conflict according to biblical principles. In contrast, a missionary who served elsewhere, he says, told me how he and other missionaries worked together to achieve unity among themselves and their organizations. As a result, they saw greater fruit in the gospel. The country in which this second group of missionaries worked had seen much division among previous missionaries and mission organizations. They wanted to avoid this regrettable situation so they decided to study while previous Christians, Christian missions had failed. 
they discovered that years of sinful infighting and mistrust between the different missionaries and mission organizations had held back the Lord's blessing and the advancement of the gospel message. And this is what's so significant. Mr. Strzok said, to start afresh, this new group of missionaries drew up a document outlining biblical principles for dealing with conflicts that might arise between them. The document included a pledge to speak the truth to one another and never to slander or backbite. They promised to not gossip about one another and agreed to represent each other's beliefs accurately. They decided to follow scriptural instructions and confront one another about known problems. They committed themselves, listen, to pray for one another and to love one another despite their differences. This approach proved tremendously successful as it resulted in an enlargement of gospel enterprise. Sounds a little bit like John 17, 21, doesn't it? that the world may know, Father, that you have sent me because our people are unified. Now, if you would, look with me at the text here in Ephesians chapter number 4. And I'll just read a few verses here. I think this will capture the context. We'll draw from the context, but let me just begin by reading a few verses here. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I'm reading from the old King James. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. I plead with you to come up alongside of me, is the idea of the Greek word implication there, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We started a church in Sheffield, Alabama about 10 years ago. We battled. We wanted to see the church grow, but we did not want to grow it superficially. So we continued to sow the seed of the gospel. Our men would go on the streets. They would preach. We engaged the community with gospel literature. Still, though, we did not really see any significant growth. People would come and they would go. And a young man called me and he said, Brother Don, a pastor in Huntsville told me about your church. We've been living in the area for a few years. We visited some other Reformed churches and quite honestly, we are looking for a church home. And I said, well, what churches did you visit? He told me. I said, well, what was your problem with some of those churches? And he mentioned five or six things. And I said, well, dear brother, quite frankly, I don't see these things as critical issues that would divide the body of Christ. I don't agree that you should have left the church over these issues. And I said, our church is called Providence Gospel Church because we believe that the gospel is not only the power of God unto salvation, but it's the power of God unto sanctification to those who've already believed. So therefore, what we want the gospel to do is we want it to drive everything, our marriages, our mortification, our mission, and our relationships with one another. And I said, I'm going to use some old archaic words like forbearance and deference, and patience, and love. This is what we want to see in our relationships, even when we don't agree on every issue. The next Sunday, he came to our church. He sat, he listened, he came for a number of months. He was elder caliber. He laid aside all these secondary things. And he became my co-elder. Why do we fight over these such minor, insignificant issues? One guy told me recently, who was strongly dispensational, even though he was reformed, he said, Brother, God broke me 
of my spiritual pride. I'm still convinced that my dispensation is right, but my disposition was wrong. I like that. I gravitate to Christ-like Calvinism. You come and try to impress me with your knowledge and what you know and who you know, and you want to articulate all the depths of sovereign grace and the doctrines of grace and all that. I like that, but when I see Christ in your life, I love that. I gravitate to people like that. So here is Paul. Let me give you an introduction here very quickly. When you go through the book of Ephesians, you find that it's like climbing, going through a delectable journey to the top of a theological Mount Everest. When you begin to read it very closely with the intention of absorbing its content, you begin to scale the heights of gospel indicatives and you pause along the way to behold the breathtaking beauty of the gospel with all of its benefits and implications as you read the latter part of the epistle. While some long for something more practical and are oftentimes tempted to get to the top quicker by taking easier routes, we would have missed the theology that motivates and sustains all of the Christian life. For you see, it's imperative, brothers and sisters, to know that gospel indicatives, what Christ has done and accomplished, afford gospel incentive to fulfill gospel imperatives. What Christ commands, what Christ directs. I find great motivation in my life as a Christian and as a minister to live my life to the praise of the glory of God's grace by relishing in these gospel indicatives what Christ has given us through his atoning beauties. And so in other words, what drives my obedience is the compelling content that I find in what Jesus has accomplished in his redemptive work. My dear friend Paul Washer has written at least 2,800 pages on the gospel. Ian Murray, as he's read some of Paul's work, he said you can tell he's well immersed in the Puritans. But Paul finds that his greatest source for living is plumbing the depths, as Spurgeon said, of the gospel. And he told me, no less than four times, four different occasions, he said, you know, Brother Don, when we get to heaven, we'll know a lot. And I said, yes, we will, because we'll be glorified. We'll see him as he is. We'll be changed into his likeness. But he said, you know, brother, we'll be searching down, hunting down the beauties of the gospel for all eternity. And when Paul told me that, I said, why wait? And that's the way he feels. Some of the things he shared with us during a devotional window, sometimes during the course of the week as I zoom into our heart cry meetings, friend, is absolutely phenomenal. It's not new, but the depth of it is so rich. It warms my heart. I have a sense of the felt Christ. In this colors all of life. And this is the amazing thing about the Apostle Paul. It even afforded Paul his aspect of entertainment to plumb the depths of Christ and him crucified. And it certainly afforded great motivation in endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now in this session, we will seek to explore the depth of these three verses that I've just read. While they are brief in content, they possess many practical applications. Listen, let me begin by giving a simple commentary on the passage. As you read Ephesians and you study the background, you find that Paul has been imprisoned in Rome. It's significant to note that his incarceration is the outcome of his faith in the gospel. 
And furthermore, in his captivity, he is more concerned over the affairs of the church than he is his own being, his own dilemma. The cares of the church perplex him daily. He's concerned for the saints and their relationships in the church of Ephesus. And while we do not know, brothers and sisters, everything that is involved here, we do know that there is something going on in the mind of the apostle for him to resort, first of all, in focusing on relationships in the body of Christ in Ephesus. When the apostle Paul says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, we see in that phrase that he has a providential perspective. You will note he does not say he is a prisoner of Rome or a prisoner of Nero, but he is a prisoner of the Lord. That's significant. He testifies that he is such, and to, to me this is quite amazing. He knows he's not there by chance. He's been put in that context by divine appointment. And so he is ministering, he is counseling from afar. Now, on practical side notes, on a personal level, everyone is a prisoner of someone or something. Everyone. Jesus said that no man can serve two masters Either you are held captive by the Lord or captive by another, another individual. Some are servants of men. They are controlled by a family member or an athlete that they are mesmerized by. Perhaps it's a male or a female icon that they're obsessed with or a tyrant that manipulates them by fear, whether that tyrant is in the home or in some context of their trafficking. Others are mastered by money, sex, food, self, sports, or entertainment. And you remember in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul said, do you not know that to whom you present your slave, yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? Listen carefully. Now when Paul says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling in the text that we just read, the calling with which you were called, the statement means, listen, that he is exhorting them to live according to the nature of their call. They are called to be holy. And they are to walk according to that call accordingly, even in regard to human relationships. In verse 2, as you look on, it says, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, here he highlights the character that they should demonstrate in their pursuit of holiness and unity. Their disposition, by the way, should display four traits of Christ-likeness. These words are pregnated with reality. They are lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, and love. Now, let me just mention these things in passing to complete introduction, and then we'll move quickly to these three major points. Number one, the word long-suffering he mentions means to tenderly endure with no intention to sinfully react while all the while maintaining a composure of love. Now, 
You see, those who walk worthy of the lofty call of holiness, brothers and sisters, must understand that this lifestyle includes both a vertical and a horizontal relationship. So our way of life encompasses both our relationship to God and our relationship to believers. And therefore, Paul admonishes here that we should be always endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is full of reality. You cannot casually read this. You can ill afford to casually read this. First of all, it's obvious from the admonition that we cannot take it lightly. The word endeavoring here suggests promptness. In other words, we're quick to make haste. We're to take the initiative, as we looked at last night, in resolving an issue toward a sinning brother. The word keep is translated to make haste. So it's interesting, it also includes to guard against loss or injury by keeping the eye upon. So it calls for watchfulness. I'm monitoring people. I don't want to listen these days. I'm seeking not only to listen to my wife and listen to others, what they say verbally, but I'm listening to their hearts. Because sometimes things are going on there that are prelude to something that could be catastrophic to a relationship. And so what is my initial response? And that is to pray. God, help them to think biblically. Help them to respond in love. You see, note, the unity of the Spirit is referring to that composure or spirit of uninterrupted oneness, listen, that the Spirit has given to all believers. You can't endeavor to keep something unless you partake of it. Unless you've been born again, regenerated by the Spirit, and ushered into the kingdom of the Son He loves, and the person that you have the relationship with has experienced the same work of regeneration and has passed from death to life, you can't endeavor to keep a unity that's never been wrought in the relationship. So, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the central object of salvation is to restore unity. And the bond of peace conveys the idea of a chain that cannot be broken. By the gospel of Jesus Christ, our bond with one another should be characterized by peace. Peace. Not a peace, listen, that comes when everyone agrees but a peace maintained when there are differences of opinion. How much glory does the gospel get when you're in a church where everybody agrees on everything? But to be gospel-driven and to know gospel-driven unity is that when you know people's temperaments are so contrary to one another and their perspectives are so foreign to one another and yet they're striving together to maintain that precious unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This speaks well to the gospel. So this portion of scripture is all about the preservation of the unity of the spirit. And this is not just for the church. It's not just for your relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. It's within the context of the home as well. I continue to exercise gospel endeavors in cultivating a deeper relationship with my wife. Our marriage is better than it's ever been, and it's a tribute to the gospel. And I've discovered that Women were not made to be understood. They were made to be loved. Amen? So there's a call to endeavor to love my wife 
And what drives that call is the gospel. So tonight I give you three things. I leave these things with you very briefly. Number one, to really understand the reality of what Paul is emphasizing here in endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. You must underscore the importance of unity. The importance of unity. We see it, first of all, brothers and sisters, in the nature of the unity of the Spirit. That's what Paul calls it, the unity of the Spirit. Listen carefully here. We see it in the doctrinal aspect of things. Once again, remember Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 are a compilation of gospel indicatives what Christ has wrought, accomplished on our behalf. And relishing in those things, immersing yourself in them, affords by the grace of God great incentive to fulfill to the praise of God's glory these gospel imperatives, what Jesus commands, particularly in regard to these relationships that he unfolds before us in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. It also speaks of the Spirit's internal work. Beginning as an internal work, not something superficial, not something self-inspired or self-wrought, but it's something that the Spirit of God has done by way of Him making us alive through His work in doing something for us that we could not do for ourselves. And furthermore, the ground here is laid by understanding the person and the work of the Spirit. It is his nature to convict for unity. It is his nature to lead and to enlighten the believers that they might enter in and maintain, do all they can to fight the good fight of faith, to maintain unity. Furthermore, to underscore the importance of unity here, we see its significance in Paul's burden. I mean, the man is incarcerated. It's not a pleasant experience. The dungeons were not filled with creature comforts. And yet, in spite of his dilemma and how he's so perplexed by these adverse circumstances, what excels that is his concern for the church. So he's still compelled to be concerned ongoingly for the church in Ephesus. We also see it in his earnest admonition in verse 3. You remember he says here, eager to maintain, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we furthermore see it, you find here, in the importance of the force of his words. You know, brothers and sisters, I don't think that we feel the empathy of the scripture as we should. To begin to meditate upon these words, to pray over them and flesh them out and seek the Lord to enliven them to our hearts, you begin to feel the weight of them. You can't easily forget them. They have such an impact a pronounced influence upon your life. You can't dismiss them. They weigh upon you and they so engender conviction that you're constrained to fulfill what God commands. And so here's Paul using these words like endeavor. It's the Greek word spudezo. It means to use speed. For speed here means diligence, hurrying to do it, to hasten. Also, it means timeliness, to make every effort, and even as a prelude to carrying it out, you're studying the situation. It's before your mind. We have a window of time, I remind you, to preserve unity or the opportunity may be lost forever. I have a hard time waiting. I'm a very impulsive individual. 
I need to wait. But there are some times that we wait too long. And we reel significantly from our delay. Because the relationship becomes decayed and ultimately is lost altogether because of the slackness, the indifference of a brother or sister who God has called and made privy to the situation to make that thing right. He uses another weighty word to keep, endeavoring to keep, endeavoring to keep. Translated, it means to make haste. Listen, interestingly, it also includes the implication to guard against loss or injury by keeping, here's watchfulness again, by keeping your eye upon the situation, closely monitoring the relationship and what is going on in the person's life. Or other words, it includes to hold fast or to preserve. So I am striving, I am laboring to keep the unity, to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, there's a second thing I mentioned in passing here, and that is we must understand what is a proper biblical approach in maintaining unity. And once again, these words speak volumes. There's a depth of reality in each one. Notice Paul's words in verse 2 as he sets forth a fundamental disposition. First of all, we are to emulate a disposition, a spirit of lowliness. Someone defined lowliness years ago is that when I look at others, I see those things that are worthy of praise. When I look at myself, I see my glitches and warts and idiosyncrasies and besetting sin. Most of the time, it's just the opposite. When we look at others, we're always looking for their glitches. When we look at ourselves, we look at anything that resembles grace and we laud ourselves in it. Humility of mind is what is suggested here. A modesty. A poor opinion of myself. Entirely opposite of the world which thrives on self-advancement. Then he uses a second word, and that is the word meekness. Note it if you would. The Greek word means gentleness and inner mildness. It means or it denotes great strength. It's a willingness, brothers and sisters, to suffer wrong. Clothed in humility here means to put the apron of humility on. We can pray all day long, Lord, humble me. Give me humility. Pour out the grace of humility on me. And yet God puts the responsibility squarely on our shoulders. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. How do we do that? Praise your competitors. Praise the people that you tend to be jealous of. Go out of your way to make their ministry thrive and successful. I'm sitting around our long conference table with the Heart Cry staff. I must tell you, one of the things that I've benefited from immensely with Heart Cry, it's been years since I've been a part of a red-hot prayer meeting. So what do you mean by that? I'm talking about urgency and expectancy and wailing before God and weeping. God, you've got to do something. You must do something, not only for our missionaries, but for us. Save us from us. And so we're sitting around this table, and after we pray, Paul is at the, at the end of the table. His first thing he brings up on the agenda is, what can we do for brother so-and-so? And he's speaking of a very good preacher in Africa. That Paul sees God's hand upon this man, and he said, what can we do 
to help this brother to perpetuate the ministry that God's given him. And what he meant was in terms of finances, how much money can we invest in getting his message out? Don't hear that very often. If we get things, it's all about me and how I can spend it and how I can use it for me and my benefits. But to pour your life into the lives of others to make them more successful is a rare thing these days. A dear friend of my wife and I, especially my wife, they were accountability partners. Some of you may have heard of her, Nancy Lee DeMoss, works with Life Action Ministries. Nancy was talking about the impact that her father made upon her life. And Art DeMoss, his whole philosophy is he became a multimillionaire, a godly man, a man that took his devotional life very seriously. But his whole concept in all of these businesses that he made his millions through and gave to various institutions and, and invested in Christianity for the sake of the gospel, his whole concept was in our businesses, the way to get the promotion and the way to get the raise is not by fighting to compete with your fellow employees. It's not a spirit of competition, but competition. In other words, you make the people you work with successful. You go out of your way to make them succeed in their occupational position. You don't hear about that in Christianity. It's all about us. It's of me and to me and through me are all things. Unto me be glory forever. Amen. That's not the spirit. That's not the spirit that's called for in endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Furthermore, he uses the word long-suffering. It means don't give way to passion or anger. Don't impulsively respond, react to something that is not kosher with your interests. When he says bear with one another, in other words, the word there implies to make every excuse for, to bear up with, to be patient with him, this person in their mistakes, their ignorance, their biblical immaturity. And I don't know why it is, but God puts these people around us, brothers and sisters. How can they not see this? I mean, suppose they've been saved for years and they... They have a pretty good knowledge of the Word of God. How can they be so immature not to see this? And you know what it calls for us to do if we're going to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? I forbear with them. I recognize that I'm a spiritually immature person as well, and I want people to have compassion on me and be patient with me. And then finally... There is the word love. In love, he says, these things are to be administered. It denotes patience here, tolerance. Here's the idea. Like a child who you have to remind numerous times. That's love in action. So I go the extra mile. I'm enduring. Finally tonight... Another thing, if you're interested in being a peacemaker and an instigator of unity in the body and preserving such, never undervalue unity's power in advancing the gospel. Don't ever undervalue it, brothers and sisters. Let me explain. It is a catalyst for spirit-empowered evangelism. A well-known evangelist in the United States in a past generation went into a local community. Many churches participated. But there was one church well-known that while the pastor came, yet he seemed to be at a distance in his relationship with the other pastors, particularly one significant man of God that was supporting this crusade. 
Every night this evangelist would preach. He preached a very pure gospel message. No one was moved. No one sought an interest in the Savior's blood. There was no apparent conviction. People sat there stoically, very woodenly, not responding. This went on for a week. The evangelist thought about going on to his next meeting. But he prayed. He had no sense that God wanted to do that. And so on the Monday following, he goes with one of the pastors to lunch one day. And as they're walking along and talking, and the pastor is commending his efforts of preaching and how well he's been doing, even though they've seen so, no one come to Christ He looks across the street and there is this man walking down the other side and the evangelist looks and he says, I've seen that man at the crusade. He's been at the meetings, has he not? And the pastor said, yes, he's been there. As a matter of fact, he's a pastor in the town here. And he said, would you introduce me to him? And it was apparent by the guy's reaction that there was an existing contempt between these two men's relationships. The evangelist moved quickly across the streets, walked up to this man's presence, introduced himself. The man responded very favorably, and he commended this evangelist for the job he was doing. He said, I'm thankful that God has sent you to our community. Thank you for your preaching. The man that he left on the other side of the street, the pastor, walked sheepishly across the street and walked into this man's presence. And what began to surface was this problem, this bitterness that existed between these two men of God in the community. God came upon that meeting. These men became transparent with each other. They sought one another's forgiveness. The relationship there on the spot was restored. And the evangelist took that as an affirmation from the Lord to continue the crusade. That night he stood in the pulpit. The way he described it was the atmosphere was electric. God came, enabled him to preach in a greater measure. There was more rapt attention. There was apparent conviction. And the days following, there was a steady stream of genuine conversions. The impediment was this existing problem between these two preachers. Once it was resolved, God honored that obedience. You see, this whole matter of unity, brothers and sisters, in closing tonight is a testimony to the world. As we mentioned last night in passing, in similar words, unity makes the gospel believable to a watching world. You have no idea. How much glory does the gospel receive if we always, and I've mentioned this before as well, attend a church where everyone agrees? A friend of mine told me the story of a young man who shared with another believer how discouraged he was over the bitterness, discord, and infighting that was going on in his church. The older believer responded by saying, Quote, I'm so thankful for our church. We have a very close-knit group, and I have every confidence that if any of us had a problem, we would have each other's back. Months went by, a year or so. The same believer admitted later, the older gentleman, that it was no longer true. The individual said, something is wrong now in our church, for I feel, quote, listen, I feel there is a distance among the people. Therefore, I no longer have the confidence that we have each other's back like we previously did. And the thing we don't realize, we oversee, is it puts the gospel in jeopardy. You try to witness the family members where there's something going on between two other family members 
The atmosphere is clouded with animosity. It impedes the flow of the work of grace in using the gospel to bring loved ones to Christ. My dad was genuinely born again in 1975. I was converted the previous year. I got a burden for dad, came back to my college room. I was in Bible college, and I wrote him a letter. And I told him I'd never read the words, to my knowledge, never read the words of Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish it myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. But I wrote Dad, I said, Dad, I'd be willing to go to hell for you. The mother said he received my letter, and he was concerned about my concern, and he shared that with me accordingly. But it led to him taking his Bible to bed with him every night. And one year later, God was preparing the way, disarming him of everything that he used as an excuse to come to Christ. He came to my school. He heard the same man preach that I had been converted under. And he gave his life to Christ that morning. And Dad, immediately, it was amazing, the transformation. No, listen, no exaggeration what I'm saying to you. Dad immediately sought to become a part of a local church body. He got in there, and because of his joy and his enthusiasm and his care for people, he was only in there four months, and they want to make him a deacon. And Dad declined it because he knew enough of the Bible. He said, I'm not qualified to be a deacon. I'm not qualified to be a spiritual leader. I'm just content to come and to support the church. A few months later, during a business meeting, a man simply wanted to be licensed to go into a ministry and preach. And some guy stood up there in the assembly and said, I object to this. I know what this man was before he came to Christ. My dad saw that. My dad heard that testimony. He felt the brunt of that animosity. Shortly after, the church started having problems, people taking sides, discord developed. The church split. And dad left the church not because of the split, he didn't follow the split, but he left the church because he was seeking for a church that was characterized by love and peace. So he went to a church across town, another Baptist church, and it wasn't long before he joined that. All he wanted to do is just come and support the local work. And when you know it, within less than a year, problems surfaced in that church, and people's feelings were hurt. The congregation was divided, and once again, the church split. You know, my dad left the church and never went back. He would come to hear me preach when I came to town. Sometimes he might go to a particular church, but he wasn't committed anymore. And I said, Dad, why? Still maintaining that with my mother, they would read the scripture together and pray together every night as a family devotion in spite of all this turmoil in these churches. I said, but Dad, why don't you get involved? Give the church another chance. He said, son, I can't do it. I don't understand why God's people can't get along with each other. You know what primarily became his church? Sitting home on Sunday morning and listening to Jimmy Swaggart on TV. I can't go back because I don't understand why God's people can't love one another. Perhaps you'll never know this side of eternity, how valuable unity is in the work of Christ in propagating the gospel. But take heed, brethren. Take heed in this hour in which you live. You do everything you can to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace and don't put the responsibility off on the elders or other people to do the dirty work. Sometimes it's the best thing for your own sanctification than for you to take the initiative and go and seek to make things right with someone that does not involve you at all, but you're privy to it. And you care enough to confront the person and love them enough to speak the truth to their heart and watch God at work. Because if that relationship mends, then it's amazing how it speaks of the power of the gospel. 
and for the future of the propagation of the gospel as it ministers to the lives of those who are outside the kingdom of Christ. It's true. It's true, brothers and sisters. It's true. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we We want reality, Lord. Reality. Help us to weigh, Lord, these blessed words from the very mind of God, muted by the living Spirit through holy men of old, given to the church, not just to the church of Ephesus, but to the church of Jesus Christ for all time. to weigh the importance of gospel-driven unity. And as a result, in the light of being blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, we follow hard after this gospel imperative to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Lord, my prayer tonight is we move on. So that your people might be more constrained to understand that this very gospel that you have used to bring them into the kingdom of Christ by an immeasurable power is a gospel that will sanctify us and sanctify our relationships with others. Help us to find our motivation in the atoning beauties of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Stand with me one more time as we sing. Uh, Come thou fountain.